0: Chapter twenty of the Seven Secrets by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter twenty. My new patient. In the feverish restlessness of the London night, with its rumbling market wagons and the constant tinkling of cab bells, so different to the calm, moonlit stillness of the previous night in rural England, I wrote a long explanatory letter to my love. I admitted that I had wronged her by my apparent coldness and indifference, but sought to excuse myself on the ground of the pressure of work upon me. She knew well that I was not a rich man, and in that slavery to which I was now tied I had an object, the object I had placed before her in the dawning days of our affection, namely the snug country practice with an old-fashioned comfortable house, in one of those quiet villages or smaller towns in the Midlands. In those days she had been just as enthusiastic about it as I had been. She hated town life, I knew, and even if the wife of a country doctor is allowed few diversions she can always form a select little tea and tennis circle of friends. The fashion nowadays is for girls of middle class to regard the prospect of becoming a country doctor's wife With considerable hesitation, too slow, they term it, and declare that to live in the country and drive in a governess cart is synonymous with being buried. Many girls marry just as servants change their places in order to better themselves, and alas that parents encourage this latter-day craze for artificiality and glitter of town life that so often fascinates and spoils a bride ere the honeymoon is over. The majority of girls to-day are not content to marry the hard-working professional man whose lot is cast in the country, but prefer to marry a man in town, so that they may take part in the pleasures of theatres, variety and otherwise, suppers at restaurants, and the thousand and one attractions provided for the reveller in London. They have obtained their knowledge of life from the society papers and they see no reason why they should not taste of those pleasures enjoyed by their wealthier sisters whose goings and comings are so carefully chronicled the majority of girls have a desire to shine beyond their own sphere and the attempt alas is accountable for very many of the unhappy marriages this may sound prosy i know but the reader will forgive when he reflects upon the cases in point which arise to his memory cases of personal friends perhaps even of relations, to whom marriage was a failure owing to this uncontrollable desire on the part of the woman to assume a position to which neither birth nor wealth entitled her. To the general rule, however, my love was an exception. Times without number had she declared her anxiety to settle in the country, for being country born and bred, she was an excellent horsewoman and in every essential a thorough english girl of the grass country fond of a run with either fox or otter hounds therefore in suburban life at kew she had been entirely out of her element in that letter i wrote composing it slowly and carefully for like most medical men i am a bad hand at literary composition i sought her forgiveness and asked for an immediate interview the wisdom of being so precipitous never occurred to me i only knew that in those night hours over my pipe i resolved to forget once and for all that letter i had discovered among the dead man's effects and determined that while i sought reconciliation with ethelwyn i would keep an open and watchful eye upon mary and her fellow-conspirator the suggestion that ethelwyn believing herself forsaken had accepted the declarations of a man she considered more worthy than myself lashed me to a frenzy of madness he should never have her whoever he might be she had been mine and should remain so come what might i added a postscript asking her to wire me permission to travel to hereford to see her then sealing up the letter i went out along the Marlebon road and posted it in the pillar-box which I knew was cleared at five o'clock in the morning. It was then about three o'clock, calm but rather overcast. The Marlebon Road had at last become hushed in silence. Wagons and cabs had both ceased, and save for a solitary policeman here and there, the long thoroughfare so full of traffic by day was utterly deserted. I retraced my steps slowly towards the corner of Harley Street, and was about to open the door of the house wherein i had diggings when i heard a light hurried footstep behind me and turning confronted the figure of a slim woman of middle height wearing a golf cape the hood of which had been thrown up over her head in lieu of a hat excuse me sir she cried in a breathless voice but are you dr boyd i replied that such was my name oh i'm in such distress she said in the tone of one whose heart is full of anguish my poor father is your father ill i inquired turning from the door and looking full at her i was standing on the step and she was on the pavement having evidently approached from the opposite direction she stood with her back to the street lamp so i could discern nothing of her features only her voice told me that she was young oh he's very ill she replied anxiously he was taken queer at eleven o'clock but he wouldn't hear of me coming to you he's one of those men who don't like doctors ah i remarked there are many of his sort about but they are compelled to seek our aid now and then well what can i do for you i suppose you want me to see him eh yes sir if you'd be so kind i know it's awfully late but as you've been out perhaps you wouldn't mind running round to our house it's quite close and i'll take you there she spoke with a peculiar drawl and dropped her h's in the manner of the true london-bred girl i'll come if you'll wait a minute i said and then leaving her outside i entered the house and obtained my thermometer and stethoscope when i rejoined her and closed the door i made some inquiries about the sufferer's symptoms but the description she gave me was so utterly vague and contradictory that i could make nothing out of it her muddled ideal of his illness i put down to her fear and anxiety for his welfare she had no mother she told me and her father had of late given way just a little to drink he used the haycock in Edgware road and she feared that he had fallen among a hard-drinking set he was a pianoforte maker and had been employed at brinmead's for eighteen years since her mother had died six years ago however he had never been the same is that when he took to drink i hazarded yes she responded he was devoted to her they never had a wry word what has he been complaining of pains in the head or what oh he seems thoroughly out of sorts she answered with some slight hesitation which struck me as peculiar she was greatly agitated regarding his illness yet she could not describe one single symptom clearly the only direct statement she made was that her father had certainly not been drinking on the previous night for he had remained indoors ever since he came home from the works as usual at 7 o'clock as she led me along the marlbone road in the same direction as that i had just traversed which somewhat astonished me i glanced surreptitiously at her just at the moment when we were approaching a street lamp and saw to my surprise that she was a sad-faced girl whose features were familiar i recognized her in a moment as the girl who had been my fellow-passenger from brighton on that sunday night her hair however was dishevelled as though she had turned out from her bed in too great alarm to think of tidying it i was rather surprised but did not claim acquaintance with her she led me past madame tussaud's around baker street station and then into the maze of those small cross-streets that lie between upper baker street and listen grove until she stopped before a small rather respectable-looking house half-way along a short side street entering with a latch-key in the narrow hall it was quite dark but she struck a match and lit a cheap paraffin lamp which stood there in readiness then led me upstairs to a small sitting-room on the first floor a dingy stuffy little place of a character which showed me that she and her father lived in lodgings having set the lamp on the table and saying that she would go and acquaint the invalid with my arrival she went out closing the door quietly after her the room was evidently the home of a studious if poor man for in a small deal bookcase i noticed well kept and well arranged a number of standard works on science and theology as well as various volumes which told me mutely that their owner was a student while upon the table lay a couple of critical reviews the saturday and spectator i took up the latter and glanced it over in order to pass the time for my conductress seemed to be in consultation with her father my eye caught an article that interested me and i read it through forgetting for a moment all about my call there fully ten minutes elapsed when of a sudden I heard the voice of a man speaking somewhat indistinctly in a room above that in which I was sitting. He seemed to be talking low and gruffly, so that I was unable to distinguish what was said. At last, however, the girl returned, and asking me to follow her conducted me to a bedroom on the next floor. The only illumination was a single night-light burning in a saucer, casting a faint uncertain glimmer over everything and shaded with an open book so that the occupant of the bed lay in deepest shadow unlike what one would have expected to find in such a house an iron bedstead with brass rail the bed was a great old-fashioned one with heavy wool damask hangings and advancing towards it while the girl retired and closed the door after her i bent down to see the invalid in the shadow i could just distinguish on the pillow a dark-bearded face whose appearance was certainly not prepossessing. "'You are not well,' I said, inquiringly, as our eyes met in the dim half-light. "'Your daughter is distressed about you.' "'Yes, I'm a bit queer,' he growled. "'But she needn't have bothered you.' "'Let me remove the shade from the light so that I can see your face,' I suggested. "'It's too dark to see anything.' "'No,' he snapped. "'I can't bear the light. You can see quite enough of me here.' very well i said reluctantly and taking his wrist in one hand i held my watch in the other i fancy you'll find me a bit feverish he said in a curious tone almost as though he were joking and by his manner i at once put him down as one of those eccentric persons who are sceptical of any achievements of medical science i was holding his wrist and bending towards the light in order to distinguish the hands of my watch when a strange thing happened. There was a deafening explosion close behind me which caused me to jump back startled. I dropped the man's hand and turned quickly in the direction of the sound, but as I did so a second shot from a revolver held by an unknown person was discharged full in my face. The truth was instantly plain. I had been entrapped for my watch and jewelry like many another medical man in London has been before me, doctors being always an easy prey for thieves. The ruffian, shamming illness, sprang from his bed fully dressed, and at the same moment two other blackguards who had been hidden in the room flung themselves upon me ere I could realize my deadly peril. The whole thing had been carefully planned, and it was apparent that the gang were quite fearless of neighbors overhearing the shots. The place bore a bad reputation, I knew but I had never suspected that a man might be fired at from behind in that cowardly way. So sudden and startling were the circumstances that I stood for a moment motionless, unable to fully comprehend their intention. There was but one explanation. These men intended to kill me. Without a second's hesitation they rushed upon me, and I realized with heart sinking that to attempt to resist would be utterly futile. I was entirely helpless in their hands. End of Chapter Twenty. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks. Com.